0: and that brings us to Revelation 19 this morning. If you don't get excited about this chapter, you need to get saved. Can I get an amen to that? Because this is what the entire book of Revelation has been pointing to. You could even argue this is what the entire Bible is pointing to. So let's open with a word of prayer. We'll do a little background, and then we'll dig into the word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. We do love you, Lord, and we come humbly before you. When I ask that man would decrease, that your spirit would increase, that you would be glorified, pray for all of us here, no matter where we are in life, what trials we may be going through. Lord, I pray you would meet us here, that you would minister to every heart. I pray for anybody here today that doesn't know you, that today would be the day of salvation, that they would not leave here without a relationship with you. So be our teacher We ask these things in your holy, and your precious name, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. So Revelation, and I want to, as we're coming toward the end of the book, the Bible lists many reasons why we should thank God and praise God. And that's what we're, as believers, that should be what we do, is we thank God and we praise God. He is praised for who he is, and what he has done. We praise him for his holiness. It says in Psalm 30, sing praise to the Lord, you his godly ones, and give thanks for his holy name. We praise him for his mercy. We praise him for his loving kindness. The Bible says it's better than life. We praise him for his goodness. It says, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. We pray that he is near to us, that he's not a faraway distant God. And Almighty God is praised not only for his attributes, but again, for his mighty works. It says in Isaiah, "'O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name, for you have worked wonders.'" His wonderful works, his wondrous works beginning with creation, our salvation, sending his son to suffer and die that we might have eternal life, the resurrection, his grace, the holy spirit poured out upon us, and no matter how long the list, I don't think we could do it justice. I could probably stand here for the next month and just talk about the greatness of our God and I wouldn't even come close to exhausting it. Amen. Now, All these things God is praised for, perhaps the least expected is the one we're going to see this morning. We need to praise God. It says in Deuteronomy, rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance on his adversaries. It says in Psalm 58, the righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance, he will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. In this morning's text, we will see heavenly hallelujahs, ring out over the final destruction of an evil world system and a glorious victory as the lord returns we live in a world today that wants to only emphasize the love grace and mercy of god and you know what we should emphasize that amen he's a loving god he's a gracious god he's a merciful god as a pastor i will have people visit they will send me a text or they will email me and say i can't come back to your church because you talk about you know, sin, and you talk about judgment, and you talk about holiness, and I just want the love part. Well, there's plenty of churches you can go to where they'll blow sunshine all over you, but they're not teaching the whole counsel of God. Can I get an amen? So our God is a God of love and grace and mercy, and that's who he is. He's the very definition of it. That being said, he's also a holy God, and because he is holy, he must judge sin. How many sinners we got in the room? Okay, hands not up, you're liar, prideful, I'll pray for you. <laughs> but here's the reality, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't it amazing that he knows you best and he loves you most? He knows every wicked, wild thing you've ever thought or done. He knows the wicked, wild things you're still yet to do, and he loves you anyway, because he is a gracious, loving, and merciful God. That being said, he will never force salvation on anyone. And as we've been going through the book of Revelation, we've been seeing that people will say, well, why is there a seven year tribulation? Why does that take place? Even the tribulation, the great tribulation, as we've been looking at, we'll go through this in a minute, is one more opportunity for people to get saved. After the church has been raptured, and while the righteous judgment of God is being poured out upon the earth, millions of people will get saved. And I truly believe more of the, especially specifically the Jewish people will get saved during that seven year period than any other time in human history. So God is a loving God. He's a gracious God. He's a merciful God, but he's also a righteous judge. So we're coming to the culmination of the book of Revelation. If you've been coming, the word revelation is apocalypsis, and it means the unveiling. So it's the unveiling of Jesus Christ. So in chapter one, we saw Jesus in heaven, clothed with a garment down to his feet, girded with about his chest with a golden band, head and hair like wool, white as snow. Uh, I like that. Eyes like a flame of fire, feet like fine brass is refined in the furnace. His voice, the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he had seven stars, and out of his mouth came a two-edged sword. His countenance was shining in its strength. And And then John says, when I saw him, I fell over like a dead man. I think all of us will have that in common when we finally see our Savior face to face. I have people tell me, well, when I see Jesus, I got questions. No, you don't. When we see Jesus, we're gonna be laid flat out in front of him, amen? We can't praise him enough for what he's already done. You know what it said in his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. When he fell over like a dead man, Jesus touched him and says, you don't have to fear. Guys, if you know the Lord, you do not need to fear. God's not giving us a spirit of fear, but a power love and a sound mind, amen? If you don't know the Lord, you should fear. I am he who gives life, Jesus said, who was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Chapter two and three, so in chapter one, we saw Jesus in heaven. And in chapter two and three, we saw the church age. Set letters to seven churches, churches mentioned 19 times in those two chapters. And that's the age that we're living in now. Many believe it's progressively through all the different churches through the ages of time. We saw the loveless church, the persecuted church, the compromising church, the corrupt church, the dead church, the faithful church, but it ends with the lukewarm church. And some believe that's the church that's gonna be on the earth when the Lord comes back. And you know what? We've got a lot of lukewarmness in the church today, amen? Now, that's the church age. Beginning of chapter four, what happens? Who remembers? remembers? And people ask me why I'm repetitive. What happens? Chapter 4, verse 1, John is called up. Where's harpazo? In in Latin, it's rapturo, where we get the term for rapture. And he goes from having an earthly perspective to a heavenly one. And from chapter 4 to chapter 19, we do not see the church mentioned again. Why? Because we have been raptured, we've been snatched away, we're in the presence of Almighty God, and God has not appointed us to wrath, so the righteous judgment of God is poured out on an unbelieving, unrepentant, wicked world that refuses to repent. Now, at the same time, many people will get saved. If you'll remember that there was a scroll, it's the ownership deed to the, to the earth. Who was the only one that could open the scroll? Jesus. And as he opened the scroll, with each seal that he opened, it was another form of righteous judgment. And again, the judgment was coming upon the world, but it was an opportunity for people to repent and people to be saved. We also saw that God sent a remnant, 144,000 Jews, 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes of Israel. I call them Jewish Billy Grahams. They're going to be sharing the truth of the gospel, and God's going to use them. We're going to see that at the same time, we're going to see the Antichrist and the false prophet come along. We've been looking at that for several weeks. The Antichrist, is not in, he's not the opposite of Christ. He's instead of Christ. He starts his own world religion. He's uh, able to, in the midst of all, this, all the seal judgments, to bring some kind of unification. They all come together, and the false prophet has everybody <laughs> worshiping the Antichrist, who's also known as the beast. So if you were here the last couple of weeks, we saw the righteous judgment of God beginning in chapters 17 and 18. Remember that we looked at Babylon. And when you see Babylon in the Bible, we know it began at the Tower of Babel, not long after the flood of Noah, his great grandson. And they were building a tower trying to reach God through their own strength. And they were trying to have the, And they basically made an idol for themselves and trying to reach God for the, on their own strength. So, Babel and Babylon throughout scripture, you always see a rebellious people who worship idols and reject the true and living God. So this last world religion headed by the Antichrist is referred to in the text as Babylon. And we saw in chapter 17, there's a religious portion of Babylon and that's the false teachers and the the false prophet. And it's a false religion where everybody lines up under the Antichrist like he's the one they've been waiting for. And then if you were here in chapter 18, we saw God bringing judgment upon the commercial side or the material side, the worldly side of this last world religion uh, known as Babylon. And we saw God's righteous judgment upon it. If you were here last week, we saw that Babylon has fallen. And when it fell, there were people that were upset. But you know who they were? They were the people that were making money off of Babylon. And they were heartbroken we're going to see a totally different reaction to Babylon falling in this morning's text. So if you have your outline, grab it. I tell them the message, God wins. Amen. I've read the end of the book, God wins. No matter how it looks, no matter how far away our world may be, in the end, God wins. Events on earth that will cause heavenly hallelujahs. Hallelujah is in the New Testament 28 times, all in the book of Psalms. It's in the book of Revelation four times, all in this chapter. We're gonna sing hallelujah. The word hallelujah there is translated praise the Lord. And we need to be praising God, amen? He's worthy to be worshiped and to be praised. And so we're gonna see these events on earth that cause heavenly hallelujahs. First, when almighty God righteously judges the world. Now, this is where people struggle. You got the whole deconstructing crowd that likes to, you know, send questions my way. Well, I've walked away. I'm deconstructing my faith. And they, they don't like it. No, what you're telling me is you're an open rebellion against God. Fellowship or rebellion, choose one. You can't have both. Amen. And if you're deconstructing, it means you're walking away. I don't even like that word. But one of the things that they they challenge is like, I don't want to serve a God that's going to send people to hell. Let me clear it up for all of us. God sends no one to hell. We send ourselves there by rejecting the gospel. Amen? He desires that how many should perish? None. None should perish. No, not one. He wants everyone in this tent, everyone on this planet to go to heaven. He offers salvation universally, but it must be accepted individually. He will never force it on you. And so people say, Well, I don't like, I'm rejecting him because he sends people to hell. By rejecting him, you're sending yourself to hell. That goes over really well in a chat, by the way. But here's the thing the reality is the righteous judgment of God is coming, but we don't have to face it. You know who faces it? The enemies of God. You're either a friend of God or an enemy of God. There's no in between. You're either for me or against me, Jesus said. So we're going to see, they're going to be singing praise songs when righteous judgment comes upon the Antichrist and the false prophet and all the people that have taken the mark of the beast. Secondly, there's heavenly hallelujahs for the marriage supper of the lamb. By the way, this is a wedding you all want to go to. Amen. The marriage supper of the lamb. Who's the lamb? Who's his bride? Us. So if you're invited to that wedding, it's because you are the bride. You are a part of the body of Christ. We're the bride of Christ. And when they see that marriage supper of the Lamb taking place, all of heaven will be rejoicing. Point number three, and this is why this is an amazing chapter. One of the many reasons. When Jesus returns as conquering Lord, some people are confused. There's the rapture, and there's the second coming of Christ. The rapture is God taking the church, and the second coming is him returning with the church. So for seven years, we will be with the Lord in heaven. During the great tribulation, at the end of the great tribulation, we return with the Lord, where we're gonna, there's gonna be a battle at Armageddon. If you're going to Israel with us in January, we're gonna teach Armageddon, Armageddon, right where that battle's going to take place. And you can see it perfectly from where Elijah called fire down from the sky at Mount Carmel. It's right below there, and so this is going to take place. But people talk about it being a battle. It's not gonna be a battle. We're gonna be with the Lord, and we're gonna be behind Him doing nothing. We're going to be clothed in fine linen, as we will see, and we'll get him, Jesus, and he'll take care of it. It's going to be quick. He's going to handle it. That's our God. I'm on team Jesus. How about you? Guys, it just doesn't get any better. The whole 19 chapters of Revelation, and you could say the entire Bible has been pointing to these five verses when we get to verse 11. And finally, there's heavenly hallelujahs when the enemies of God are destroyed. Do we want to see people destroyed? What's the answer? Should we rejoice in the death of the wicked? What does the Bible tell us? No. We want to see them saved. There before the grace of God goes everyone in this this tent. Amen? We're just one beggar leading another beggar to the bread. We should never be self-righteous. We've accomplished nothing. We've just surrendered our life to the one who accomplished everything. Amen? So let's begin there looking at God wins. Events on earth that cause heavenly hallelujahs, it's going to begin when Almighty God righteously judges the world. Look at verse 1. After these things, that's all the things we saw in chapter 18, after the righteous judgment, the commercial part or the, the, worldly, the worldly system had been wiped out by God, and it says this, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. They had just witnessed God bringing righteous judgment upon Babylon, and the response was to praise God. Now, if you were here when we were in Revelation 6 and 7, you'll remember that the martyrs are in heaven, and they're literally at the altar, and they're crying out to God saying, oh God, when will you avenge us? These people who, most of these martyrs will be decapitated. They will certainly be put to death, many tortured. And they come to God and say, when will you avenge us? When will you bring righteous judgment upon those who have slaughtered us, those who have, have you know, killed us, tortured us? Oh, Lord, when? When, right here. When God's bringing his righteous judgment, those who are in heaven are going to be praising God that for the wicked and those who reject the Lord that want nothing to do with God, that have taken the mark of the beast, that shake their fists at God, that are going to actually try to fight God at the very end, go into that battle at Armageddon and they're praising God for the righteous judgment of God. Don't you want judgment for everyone else? Don't you hate pride in other people, right? Look, we all deserve to spend eternity separated from God in hell. We all deserve it. And if you don't think you do, again, look at your own life. How many sins does it take to be a sinner? I mean, how many murders does it take to be a murderer, right? So we're all sinners, and God can't have one sin in heaven, or he's got earth part two. And so because we're all sinners, he sends his son to suffer and die, that if we repent, if we surrender our lives to him, he washes us white as snow. He hung on the cross as if he lived your life so you could go to heaven as if you lived his. That's our God, amen? Now, he suffers long. We've been seeing this, 6,000 years worth of reaching out to mankind, wanting to see people saved, and when you say no, 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 eventually there's going to come a time where it's too late to repent, and chapter 19 is when it's too late to repent. Grace has been offered, mercy's been offered, salvation's been offered. It says in Revelation 6, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Back in Revelation 7, we saw a great multitude saved out of the tribulation ready to end the world system. And so here we have this great multitude in heaven and we know that they're singing right now. We know what they're singing. Holy, 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 Lord, God Almighty, who was and is and is to to come. It's called the Revelation song. It's in Revelation. But now as they see what's happening on earth, which also tells us when we're in heaven, we have an idea what's going on on earth. I don't fully understand how, you know, a lot of people struggle because they say there's no tears in heaven. So how could anybody see anything on this planet because they'd be in tears? But God, obviously, we have an idea what's going on. And in this case, they know that the righteous judgment is coming. Babylon will fall, and when it does, all of heaven will celebrate. The word hallelujah there is just a, uh, a Latin term. For, uh, you know, Hebrew is hallelujah, and this is more of a Latin you know, take on that word. And again, it still means the same thing, praise the Lord. So hallelujah, hallelujah is the same word. The great multitude of the heavens respond to the judgment of God again, and it means praise Yah. Yah is God and praise, so praise the Lord. You see these words together again in in Psalm 150, and, and we see 28 times in the Psalms, and every time they translate that, praise the Lord. So hallelujah is used, and the praise of the Lord, recognizing the salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord. Look at it. He says, you know, we're praising God because we're saved. Guys, If everything else in your life falls apart, if you're born again, you should be praising all the time. Amen? We're going to heaven. The worst thing the world can do to us is the best thing that could happen to us. You can't threaten me with heaven, amen? And if we have an eternal perspective, I'm not saying that life is easy, I'm not saying we won't go through trials because the Bible promises that we will, But because of whose we are, because we're born again, because we're heaven bound, we should have a different perspective than a lost and a dying world does. So that word appears four times in this chapter. They're praising the Lord. They're thankful for the salvation, for his glory, for his honor, for his power. They're in heaven. They've seen him in the fullness of his glory. They've seen that Jesus in chapter one. By the way, Jesus is no longer a baby in a manger and he's not a savior on a cross. He's that all-powerful Jesus that we see in Revelation chapter one. So when he comes, by the way, pet peeve, why do people, first of all, we don't need any paintings of Jesus, but if you have one, that's fine. But here's the deal. Why do they always gotta make him look wimpy? Uh, Am I not telling the truth? Amen? It's nauseating to me. First of all, he was a concrete mason. He was a contractor. Plus he's almighty God. God is never wimpy. Can I get an amen to that? So when I see those wimpy people, I'm like, stop that already. Who made that? Make them look like, no, just get that down. But here's the reality. We see who Jesus looks like in heaven, and he's almighty and all powerful, and that's the one who's coming back, amen? Not somebody coming in wimpy on a pony. That's not happening. He's coming on a white horse, and when he comes back, he's going to bring righteous judgment, amen? Amen. He alone can save. All glory belongs to him. He is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. He's almighty and all powerful. Verse two says there, for true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication and he has avenged on her the blood of his his servants shed by her. So who is the great harlot? What is that describing? The what? False prophet, false religion, yes. So what's happened is this false prophet, this false religion have come along and they've been leading people away from the true and living God and persecuting the church. And so the Lord comes along, again, bringing his righteous judgment and he's going to bring judgment upon those who persecute his church. When people persecute Christians, they are persecuting Jesus, amen? Remember when Saul was on the road to Damascus and the Lord knocked him off his high horse and he was laying on the ground and he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now he wasn't persecuting Jesus personally because he's in heaven, but he was persecuting Christians. And so our Lord is a loving God, a gracious God, and a merciful God, but he doesn't like it when people mess with his kids. Amen? He's our heavenly father. And so he will bring righteous judgment. And we see here in verse two, that's exactly what he does. Babylon's friends mourned her fall. The kings mourned, the merchants mourned, the shipmasters mourned, but the people in heaven rejoice. The focus of worship, again, is on the great works of God. And specifically in this case, his righteous judgment upon one who had been, again, killing his children, preaching a false gospel, exhorting and encouraging people to worship the beast to get the mark of the beast once they took the mark of the beast there was no more opportunity for repentance so consequences come verses three through five again they said hallelujah her smoke rises up forever and ever you don't think you'd see that in the same verse did you hallelujah babylon's burning hallelujah the world system is coming to an end you know what? We look at the world system we live in right now, and it's just incredible proof of God's grace. Amen? The fact that he hasn't come back yet is amazing. But you know why he hasn't come back yet? Because there's still people that need to be saved. The Bible says, when the fullness of the Gentiles, that's when the last one of us, you know, that's a Gentile gets saved, that's when the Lord will return. And it says there, and the 24 elders, we saw them in an earlier chapter. They are human beings who are now elders in heaven and they're around the throne worshiping God, the 24 elders. It says, and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, amen, alleluia. Look, people will say, why? If we go to heaven, we're going to worship all the time. Won't that get old? (laughs) Let me clue you in. No. When we see God for who he is, we're not gonna be able to do anything but now. Are we gonna have other things we do in heaven? Yes. But I want you to know that worshiping him will never be a have to, it'll be a get to. No matter how great you think God is, he's greater than that. Nobody's getting to heaven going, oh, I thought it had been bigger. <laughs> I thought he'd been more glorious. Wow, he's really not that great. that's no, not gonna happen. We're gonna be blown away. And I try to live my life backwards because I think about that day when we're standing before the Lord not at the great white throne judgment because we're saved, but at the Bema Seat judgment where he judges us on how faithful we were with the gifts he's given us. And I know that there's going to be things I look back at that I failed miserably, things I could have done for the Lord that I didn't. So I try to imagine being there while I still have time to go back and fix it because I won't be able to fix it then. But I also know that once I see him face to face, I will say, if I had known you were this great, I would have prayed more. If I knew this, you were this awe-inspiring, I would have stepped out in faith more. I would have been less ashamed of the gospel. I would have shared my faith more. Guys, the reason that we don't share our faith enough is we fear men more than we fear God. We're more afraid of what the world will say to us. So this righteous judgment is coming, bringing it into this worldly system, because they know that once the worldly system is gone, that the Lord's coming back with his church, and we will rule and reign with him on the earth for a thousand years. Years. Look at verse five, it says, the voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you as servants, those who fear him, both small and great. I love that he's a God for everyone. Amen? He's a God for the great and the small. Doesn't matter your background, it doesn't matter what you've done, where sin abounds, grace abounds, much more. Nobody in here is so good that you don't need Jesus, and nobody in here is so bad that you can't be saved. He's the answer for the most righteous person who's ever lived, asked Nicodemus, you must be born again, right? Pope of the day, gotta be born again. The woman at the well, married five times, shacking up with a guy. The women wouldn't even, she didn't want to be around the other women because they taunted her, so she's collecting water in the noonday sun. Jesus ministers to them both. And guys, whether you think you're the most sinful person who's ever lived, or you think you're one of the best people on this planet, the answer is the same, you need Jesus, amen? He's the answer, he is the hope, He is the reason, and we need to praise Him. Not only for the fall of Babylon, but the blessedness of God's people, all the blessings He has upon us. So point number one, and God wins events on earth that cause heavenly hallelujahs when Almighty God righteously judges the world. Now, for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Look at verse six. And I heard it, I heard. As it were, the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters, the sound of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Now, they've already been singing or praising the Lord. I think here the volume just got kicked up. Anybody ever been by a really big waterfall? It's deafening loud. I've never been to Niagara Falls, but I've seen video of it and that, and it's so loud. And it, I know that like when I would do beach baptisms in Santa Cruz where the beaches were huge, or I've done weddings. By the way, beach wedding sounds better than it turns out to be sometimes, so I'm just saying. Because <laughs> sometimes if there's big waves, you can't hear. What? Do you take that's one? you know, but yeah, it's not that good. But the point is that the waters are so loud, and guess what? The praise is gonna be so loud. And so intense. By the way, when we get to heaven, again, there's time for contemplative worship. There's time to be quiet with the Lord. But it's really not when you're around a bunch of other people that love him, we ought to be bringing the roof off of this tent in Jesus' name, amen? I go to India, you got people walking four hours to come to church, barefoot, walking through weeds, getting bit by snakes, and they're worshiping 50 people. Sounds like 5,000 because they are saved and they're so thankful for it you know, they would say to me, how far do your people walk? Oh, if it rains, they might not come driving. <laughs> if that hit you in the chest, you deserve it. But it, so pure, pure worship does not come from a heart of obligation. Pure worship comes from a joyful response to God's grace, his character, and his attributes. It's a really old song. I know most of you have never heard of it, but I listened to it again yesterday because I think about it from time to time. It's called The Concert of the Age. It's by Phillips, Craig, and Deans from like the 70s. A lot of you weren't even born yet. And I listened to it because it just talks about that first concert in heaven, how you can see people as far as the eye can see. And, and you, know, Michael, you know, Michael's, you know, hitting the chime and all of a sudden you just hear all of creation just worshiping the Lord. And every time I hear it, I just weep. Because guys, that day's coming, amen? But you know what? We can worship him now. And we need to have that heart for him now. But they said, they're crying out, hallelujah. We see the, by the way, it's not just loud water, but loud thunderings. So that, that power of the water and thunder. I lived in Kansas City for six months back in the 80s. And I'd never seen thunder and lightning like this. It was in the middle of the night and you literally could have just gone outside because there was so much lightning, it was just lit up and the thunder was so loud. And so in the midst of that, that's gonna be the praises of the people. Their worship is gonna just be so, again, intoxicating and so completely surrendered fully to God. Hallelujah! for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. They're praising God at the top of their lungs as they rejoice that Almighty God has defeated wicked Babylon, Satan, the demons, the Antichrist, the false prophet, the false religions, the wicked world system will all be defeated and done away with it. And they're saying, all that is within me, bless your holy name that those things have been done away with. Verse seven, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Who's his wife? We are the bride of Christ. Now what's interesting, there are in an ancient, in a Jewish marriage, an ancient Jewish marriage, there were four kind of components to the marriage and they all point clearly to the Lord. The first thing that happened was a betrothal. The groom would travel from his father's house to the home of the prospective bride, and he would pay a purchase price for his bride, a dowry, that would establish a, a written covenant between the man and the woman he's going to marry. So he had to come and pay a price first. Then there was, they were entering into a covenant, which was a promise that could only be broken, in their case, by divorce, even though they're not married yet. That's how Mary and Joseph were, right? His betrothed wife. So it could only be taken away by divorce. The second thing was a waiting period. During that time, the groom would return to his father's house and prepare living arrangements, often by adding rooms to his father's house. It says this in John 14, "'Let not your hearts be troubled. "'Believe in God, believe also in me. "'In my father's house are many rooms. "'If it were not so, would I have not told you?' that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, will take you to myself. And where I am, there you may be also. So there's a covenant that's entered into, a price has been paid for the bride to become part of the groom. The groom goes away and he prepares a place so that the bride can be brought home after the wedding. Then after the wait, we have the return. The groom comes back for his bride at a time that she doesn't exactly know. So she has to be ready because he can come at any time. We've seen the parables in the Bible where she's got all her bridesmaids and they're sleeping in her house and it could, they may, w- may wait a week, a month, six months, because they're not allowed to go, he's not allowed to go back and get the bride until the father says the house is ready. The father inspects it and says, okay, son, the house is ready. Go get your bride. And then the fourth thing is the feast. The groom takes his bride back to his father's house for the wedding ceremony to consummate the marriage, to celebrate the wedding feast that lasted for the next seven days. Now, if you don't see Jesus in this, you're not paying attention. So there's a betrothal. Jesus paid the price at the cross of Calvary. There's been a covenant promise between us and him that we are his bride. He is our groom. He has paid the price for us. He has gone away. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, but he's preparing a place for us. And then we are in that time now where we are waiting upon him. But as we wait, we ought to be getting ourselves ready for when he comes. And guys, he's coming back. He's going to take us home. And it's not a seven-day feast. We're going to spend seven years with him in heaven during the great tribulation. And then we will come back and rule and reign with him for a thousand years upon the earth. And by the way, the Bible rocks. Can I get an amen to that? All of this is pointing to Jesus. All of it. And we... Are the bride it says his wife has made herself ready? What, what do we do to make ourselves ready? What do we do as Christians? Well, I think the first thing we need to do is pursue a deeper walk with the Lord. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. You want to have more faith, spend more time in God's Word. As believers, we prepare ourselves for the Lord by using the gifts He's given us, we prepare ourselves. For his return, make ourselves ready by spending more time in prayer, intimate fellowship with him. Guys, when the Lord comes back, you ought to know him really well already. Amen. We have that relationship with him. I, look, I've been married thirty-eight years to my beautiful wife, and as much as I love her and as well as I know her, I know Jesus better and I love Him more. And she knows Jesus better and loves Him more than she loves me. And that's what makes a wedding in the last thirty-eight years when Jesus Christ is at the center. Amen. So we need to prepare ourselves. Guys, we shouldn't be sitting up on a hill contemplating our navel and staring out into the sky. Amen? God did not save you to make you pew potatoes, right? We don't want to be the biggest, fattest, best-fed sheep in town. And doing nothing. The Dead Sea's dead because it's all inlet and no outlet, amen? As believers, we come here to refuel, to go out into the world, to your mission field, to point people to Jesus, to pray for divine appointments. And again, when you show up at work tomorrow, the Holy Spirit just entered the building, amen? When you're walking around the neighborhood, when you're in the grocery store, the Holy Spirit is there, and He wants to do a work in you and through you, and we need to make ourselves ready. Spend time with Him in word and prayer and worship and fellowship with other believers. Seek to live a holy and set-apart life. Again, works don't save us. We know that. It's not faith plus works, but it's faith that works. If we truly have faith, it will produce good works. Good works can't save you. If they could, Jesus wouldn't have to go to the cross. But once you've been sanctified you know, at salvation, we're in that sanctification process, being molded more and more into the image of our Savior. Now, notice what it says about the bride in verse eight. And to her, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteousness, righteous acts of the saints. So as believers we are clothed in linen. Now, this is where the whole white wedding dress came from. It's right here. Clothed in fine linen, white linen, which represents the purity. Now, again, it's not we don't, aren't pure because we're good, but we've been made pure because Jesus died on the cross for us. Amen? What can wash away my sins? Nothing but... So his blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness and we are seen holy because of what he did on the cross of Calvary. Now the good works don't save us, but a life that bears fruit and produces good works is a reflection of a life that's been transformed by faith in Jesus Christ and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. There are several ways you can know that you're truly saved. And one of them is all your priorities change. Your passions change, your priorities change. Here's another one that I think is as big as anything. You become convicted over the sin in your life. Before we know the Lord, we live in it and we cherish it and we brag about it on Monday at the water cooler about the weekend we had. And then we give our life to the Lord and we're grieved by it. Guys, if there's no conviction, there's been no conversion. But since we've given our life to the Lord, our priorities change, our passions change, the way that we view sin is so much different then verse 9 it says there then he said to me right blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the lamb for he said to me these are the true sayings of god when you're called that means you've been invited to the wedding now that invitation is universal you've been invited but guys we need to respond to the invitation When he invites us, there's the called and then there's the chosen, right? So he calls you unto salvation, but he's not going to force it on you. And eventually you need to respond to it. But blessed are those who are called. We've been called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're invited. We can come, but we have to respond to the invitation. God is king. Jesus is the son. And the original guest list included God's chosen people, Israel, But they didn't want to come to the wedding feast. They don't have time to read it. Read Matthew 22. They're invited to the feast and they're like, we got stuff to do. I'm paraphrasing. We got stuff to do. And nobody was going to show up. So what did he tell them to do? Go out and do what? Go out to the roadways and just find people and invite them. And praise God for that because that was the Gentiles getting invited. We've been invited. Thank you, Jesus. Amen? So again, the Jews, of course, are still invited. They're still His chosen people and God's not done with them. I'm pro-Israel because God's pro-Israel. Amen? But at the same time, they were invited, but they didn't come. You've been invited, will you come? Because they didn't fill up the wedding hall, the original guests expanded the guest list. So what's the wedding garment? It's the same as a wedding dress that a bride is wearing. It starts by opening up your heart to Jesus and asking him to make you his own. It's about letting him into your life and allowing him to change you. The angel said, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The chosen are those who have decided to follow on his terms. There's a blessing just to be called, to be honored by God by receiving an invitation, yet the real honor doesn't come just by being invited, but by accepting his invitation. Bible says in Romans, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him How can he call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? This is why the scripture says, how beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring good news. Guys, there are people that need Jesus all around you. And I don't know about you, but there's times when I've wimped out anybody besides me. When you know the Holy Spirit's prompting you to engage a conversation to at least start to build a relationship so you can talk to these people and sometimes we're too busy or we just don't know how how we're going to answer a question or we feel ill equipped God's not looking for ability, but availability. The Bible says the eyes of the Lord search to and fro among the whole earth, seeking one he can show himself strong on account of one whose heart is loyal to him. God's not looking for better methods or a better message. We've already got the message. He's just looking for men and women who say, use me. And I promise you, if you pray for divine appointments and ask God to use you, he will use you every single day. Amen? So the invitation was sent. And on that day, everyone will see the church for who she really is, the precious bride of Christ, Again, the church, in a way, please, this is kind of lame, but uh, from when I was in a youth pastor, I said the church is almost like Cinderella right now. What I mean by that is, in the ashes, people want nothing to do with her, they don't think she's worth anything, they ignore her. Here's the good news, the Lord's going to come, the shoe fits, we belong to Jesus. Can I get an amen to that? And we belong to the Lord, and He is our Savior. The world sees Christians as fools, Amen? You know, I love it when I'm talking to someone about the Lord, they'll go, well, I've got a PhD from such and such a place in molecular biology, piled higher and deeper, amen, but PhD, I'm sorry. But what I, when I, but I love that, and there's this arrogance, and I'll always respond the same way. I say, look, please don't take offense, well, maybe you should be offended. The Bible says, proclaiming to be wise, they become as fools. I said, you know what, you could be the most important, you could be the most intelligent person who's ever lived on this planet and you are an idiot compared to God. Amen? That might not work for your style of sharing with people, but <laughs> it's what it is. You, do it, you, can, you can do it in love. People know you love them. You can be direct. It's okay. You know, I'm, more, I'm a little more on the Apostle Paul than the Barnabas side, I think. But here's the thing. There's this arrogance, and people look at Christians like we believe in spite of the evidence, you know, that we're just superstitious you know, you really believe that a guy got a bunch of animals on a boat? Yeah. You really believe that a guy was swallowed by a big fish? And my response is always, you believe that that fish became a man, so which one of us has got a bigger leap to get to? Can I get amen to that? Did not go from the goo to the zoo to you. But the reality is that Christians are looked at as being uneducated, you know, unscientific idiots by the world often. Guys, we know what we believe, we know why we believe it, and we do not have to apologize for it or be ashamed of it because our God is all-knowing, almighty, all-powerful. He's the creator of all things. He's the Alpha and the Omega, and we do not have to apologize for our Savior or for our faith. May we speak it with boldness and may we do it in love. Amen? Amen? Now notice. What happens there at the verse nine, so he says, blessed is the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. So people are blessed by the marriage supper of the lamb. He sees that the the groom and the bride are going to be coming together soon. And they're so blessed by what they see taking place. Now, verse 10, John gets off the track. Now, this is John the apostle who was boiled in oil and didn't die, then was sent to the island of Patmos who God is speaking to and giving this vision to. And as he's having this vision, look what he does in verse 10, proving that he needs to be saved like the rest of us. And I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. John got caught up in the moment of all the things that were taking place and he bowed down to this angel. And what does the angel say? Get up. Don't do that. Now, let me make it really clear. We don't worship saints. We don't worship angels. We don't worship people. And you certainly better not be worshiping pastors. Can I get an amen to that? You, don't wor- you know who we worship? Jesus Christ and Him alone. Amen? Guys, we don't, we don't pray. If anybody could grieve in heaven, it would be all the saints with statues that people are praying to. They'd be like, would you knock it off? What does this guy say? Don't do that. Stand up. Amen? Amen? Mary. If anybody could be grieved in heaven, it would be Mary. You could pay five billion Hail Marys. One, she's not hearing them. Two, it won't do anything. And you don't need to do any of that because when Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished, which means the price is paid in full. So there's no more penance to earn heaven. Amen? And so here's that verse. It just cuts away for a moment. Like John starts to worship an angel. Like, dude, get up. Don't do that. So Heaven rejoices for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Number three, we might not get through all this. Don't panic. Verse 11. Says there, at the end of verse 10, he says, he fell to the seat to worship, and he said, worship God for testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now watch what happens here. We're changing gears. When Jesus Christ comes back again, returns to a hostile earth. When did Jesus ascend from heaven? What happened? What had just happened. When he went to heaven, what happened? He was crucified. He rose from the dead. He walked among them for 40 days. He ascended into heaven. Amen? So that's what happened. Now he's coming back. Now watch what it says. Now uh, now I saw heaven opened. This is John seeing this vision. And behold, a white horse. And he was set on it was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. So he sees heaven opened. Everything in the previous 19 chapters has all been pointing to this. This is not a spiritual return, but he's coming physically back to the earth. It tells us in Zechariah that when Jesus returns, he will will first come to the Mount of Olives. In Isaiah 64, it says, oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake in your presence as fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. This was a prayer and a prophecy of Isaiah, and it's happening right here. Now, when he came into Jerusalem the first time, he rode on the back of a what? Full of a donkey. And he came, and a donkey was an animal of peace. A white horse is an animal of war. Jesus came the first time seeking to bring peace, and now he's coming back bringing righteous judgment. Then it says there in verse 12 His eyes are like the flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one could know except himself. His eyes were a flame of fire. You know that the Lord sees everything, amen? There is nothing hidden from him. Your thought life, not hidden from him. He reads us all like a book. He knows everything about us. When he comes back, his eyes are like a flame of fire. The people that he's coming to righteously judge, he sees them for exactly who they are. He knows the opportunities they had to be saved. He knows the, reject, the way that they rejected him. They shake their fist at him. They persecuted and killed and martyred his, his children, if you will. And when the Lord comes back, he sees through them. Notice he's wearing many crowns. When he came the first time, he wore a thorn of crowns on his head. And when he comes back, he's wearing what is called a diadem. A diadem is a crown of a king. Guys, he went to the cross as a suffering servant on our behalf, suffered and died that we might have eternal life. But he's come back as the king of kings and the Lord and the Alpha and Omega, and every knee's going to bow, and every tongue's going to confess before it's over that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? Amen. The world, amen. The world rejected him before at the cross, and they're going to reject him again. Any view of God which eliminates his judgment, again, he's coming at this time to bring righteous judgment. It says there, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the word of God. What's the first verse in the book of John? In the beginning, what? And the word? And the word? Amen. So Jesus is the word. The Bible says in John 1:14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So that's Jesus. So written on him is the word of God. He is the word of God. That's why we need to study the word of God. We're not reading Moby Dick. Can I get an amen to that? It's a living, breathing word of God. We're reading the Bible. have people tell me, well, I've already read it. Dude, I've taught through chapters of the Bible 20 times, and the 21st time God's still teaching me stuff. Amen? It's living and breathing. So he's coming back. And again, while we love the gracious, loving, merciful, kind, long-suffering Savior of the world, we must never downplay his holiness. Notice he is dipped in blood. Now, there's some discussion amongst commentators, theologians is this his blood, as a reminder that he had gone to the cross, or is it the blood of those that he righteously judges and brings judgment upon? I'll give you my answer. I don't know, but in either case, it applies. Amen. If it's the blood, if it's some of the blood of when he came the first time, amen. I kind of lean more toward it's the blood of those who he's righteously judging. So then it says there in verse 14, and the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Who's that? It's us. Sarah, don't you love that we ride horses when we come back? Takes care of horses. Here's the good news. We wouldn't have to know how to ride one. We'll know how to ride one then. Can I get an amen to that? We're coming behind the Lord riding on white horses as he comes back to bring righteous judgment upon the earth. That's our God. Amen? These are God's people. There's little doubt that the angels will accompany us but the main idea is that the Son of God leads the people of God from heaven against the earth. So if you're a born-again believer, you're going to be a part of this army. It reminded me, when my kids were little, we used to do these little like church services in our house. We had a little flannel board, and we'd have one of the kids lead a worship song. And one of them was, I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. You know that one? okay? Guess what? We're going to be in the Lord's army. We're coming back with him. And like I said, we're not going to be trained in anything. We're going to be clothed in white linen because of what he did on the cross, we're going to be behind him, and we're going to watch Jesus bring quick and thorough judgment upon the earth. Again, there's no mention of us wearing any armor because we don't need it. Amen? We got Jesus. By the way, that's a good lesson. Let him do the fighting. Jesus is the one who's wearing the blood of battle while we, the saints, are dressed in spotless white garments. The implication is he's been fighting and we're just following. He's much better in battle than we are. There are times in life we'd be much better off leaving all the fighting up to God. It says in Romans 12, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Amen? Let's leave it in God's hands. Verse 15, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, a sharp sword, and with it should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress with the fierceness of the wrath of the Almighty. Now, it says a sword. I don't, he's not going to be like a pirate with a sword in his mouth. That's not what it's talking about. And I don't believe that he's actually going to use a physical sword. What did he use to create everything? His word. His word. Sword in the Bible is a picture of the Word of God. And I believe that offensive weapon, I believe when, when we come to fight the enemy, he's going to just speak the Word, and they're all done. If he says light is and light was, he can say, army done, army done. Can I get him into that? He can just speak the Word, and all the enemies who've gathered together to fight the Lord will be struck down out of his mouth. He himself, you notice it says the wine press, that's where they would crush grapes and anybody who walked through the wine press would come out stained. And the Lord, though he's gonna bring righteous judgment, the blood of those that he brings righteous judgment against will be again splashed on him in some level. Our sword is the most important weapon and the most important tool we have as Christians. If you're having trouble trusting God, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You're looking for comfort in a difficult time, This is my comfort and my confliction, for your word has given me life. Looking for direction in life, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. He's the one that's going to rule with a rod of iron. Jesus comes to rule and to reign in triumph, to rule the nations with a rod of iron. It says in Psalm 2, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them with pieces like a potter's vessel. He himself treads that winepress of the fearness of the wrath of almighty God. God. Now, we don't have time for me to teach it, but I'm going, to read these, I'm going to read verse 16 on and we'll look at it next week. So you're going to come back. But I don't want to leave you without seeing this, okay? So let's just read it. It says, and on his robe is written on his thigh, the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds, They're flying in the midst of heaven. Come and gather together for the supper of the great God. You know, there's four suppers in the Bible. The supper of the lamb, the, you know, the Lord, the communion, right? One of them is this supper. And these are going to be birds that are called down from heaven. And when people died in those days, they didn't have, they didn't just have places to put them in the ground. And literally these birds would come and he's calling them because, hey, all these people are about to die. Let's get some birds down here. It's in the Bible. It says that you may eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of the captains, the flesh of the mighty men, the flesh of the horses, sorry, Sarah, and of those who sit on them, that flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. Now watch this. And I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, the kings of the earth, all that followed him, their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. To the very end, the Antichrist and the demons and all that follow him are still going to think that they can defeat Almighty God. And then let's see how it ends. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. These two cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. I went to this church today for the first time. They're talking about brimstone. By the way, brimstone doesn't smell good. And when you're burning, surrounded by brimstone, that's not good. And it says, and the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Come back next Sunday when you get to chapter 20, we're going to see Satan bound for a thousand years. We're going to see us reigning with the Lord for a thousand years upon the earth. We're going to see that satanic rebellion is crushed and we're going to see the great white throne judgment. Guys, the Bible rocks, amen? So, God wins. Here's the only thing I have really to ask you. I'll close with this worship team coming up. God wins. Are you on team God? Have you given your life to Jesus Christ? Have you been born again? See, you don't win without the Lord. Why? Because we're all sinners and our sin has separated us from a perfect holy God. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible says, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. If you're here this morning and maybe you've been going to church for a long time or maybe it's the first time you've ever been to church, Salvation isn't joining a church. Salvation isn't any of the good works that we might try to do to earn heaven. Salvation comes, and here's the word, it's repentance. Repent means to change your mind, to change your heart, to change direction. It means you're walking in a life apart from God, away from Him, with no relationship. And then you recognize that you're a sinner And you you believe and, and know that Jesus is the Savior. And so what do you want to do? You want to turn around and surrender your life fully to him. I used to walk that way, but now I was on the throne. Now I'm putting the Lord on the throne. Not just making him my savior and getting the get out of hell free card and putting it in my wallet, but making him the Lord of my life and surrendering my life fully to him. So the Bible says, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my father in heaven. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my father in heaven. If you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, here's your opportunity to confess him before men. Guys, if you can't confess him in here, you won't live for him out there. Anybody here at all said, you know what? I know that I want to surrender my life to the Lord. I wanna have the promise of eternal life. I'm ready to surrender my life to him and make him not just savior, but my Lord. Anybody at all, raise your hand so I can pray with you. God bless you, brother. Anybody else? Don't leave here without him. It would break my heart. My heart means nothing really, but it would just break my heart if there was anybody that was here today, then when we get to judgment day, is being taken away from the Lord because we didn't respond. Anybody else? Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you, we love you. We thank you for this man who has raised his hand today to surrender his life to you. We ask, Lord, that you can pray this with me, silently or aloud. Dear Heavenly Father, I come to you this morning and I confess that I am a sinner. I believe that Jesus Christ is God, that he died on the cross. And he rose from the dead. Lord, forgive me. I surrender my life to you. Help me, Lord, to walk with you. Thank you, Lord, for forgiving me. In Jesus' name, amen.